This is Michael Levitin, and you're listening to episode five of The Tell. The greatest torture of my writing and storytelling life is the common suggestion that stories should be relatable. (laughs) Usually directed at me, (laughs) that my stories specifically should be more relatable. Now, I'm not sure I know what they mean, (laughs) Um, but I suspect they mean that I'm supposed to uh, talk about things that I did that other people would potentially do, (laughs) situations that other people might find themselves in. Um, And I tend to tell stories about things that no one would do but me, (laughs) that that I'm supposed to behave in life as a normal person (laughs) and that then people will like my stories better. Um, so this is strange to me because, uh, first of all, uh, does everybody really relate to the same thing? That doesn't, that doesn't seem true. And, and I also resent the idea that there's some ideal person that I'm supposed to be trying to be liked by. There's somebody out there or, or some mass group of people that I'm supposed to please by catering to their experience. Um, I don't even know if I'm capable of, of doing such a thing. But I, So it's just funny to me seems so crazy. I must be misunderstanding it because if someone comes up to me and says, Michael, I've got a great story. I ended up in a really common situation that everybody ends up in and I did the same kinds of things everybody would do. There's just nothing very appealing about that. That that doesn't excite me. If someone tells me, hey, Michael, I ended up in a situation no one ever gets in and I did things that only I would do. That's very exciting. I'm like, well, what happened? What, what, why did you do that? What What's going on? I'm sure something crazy resulted. Uh, So that said, here are some stories from Carly Scortino and Jeff Lewis about uh, people doing things I wouldn't do. This is episode five of The Tell. I was reading at the Gramercy Park Hotel, which is around the corner from my house. Um, I like to read there sometimes because it makes me feel rich and... um, (laughs) because when I try and read at my house, I just, like, end up watching porn. So it's, like, late afternoon, and I'm reading a book, and this guy comes over and starts talking to me, and uh, and he's trying to flirt with me, and I'm like, no, I'm busy, you know. He's mid-30s, like, okay-looking in a suit, sort of geeky. I'm like, no, I can't, I'm busy. And he's like, I created And I was like, oh, actually, I have a ton of time. Um... (laughs) And then we start talking, and we have this regular intro conversation. You know, he's like, what are you doing around here? Like, what do you do? And if I paid you $2,000, would you have sex with me? And I was like, "Uh, excuse me, I'm not an idiot. Of course I will. (laughs) Um, It's funny, like, when people offer you sex or money for sex is when you realize how stupid that movie Indecent Proposal is, because no one would say no to have a million dollars for sex. It's when you're like in high school and your friend's like, how much would you have to be paid to have sex with Mr. Shepard? And you're like, ew, gross, $5 million. But that's just because you've never paid rent and then you grow up and you realize it's actually more like 500. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this guy's like, okay, I'm staying at the St. Regis Hotel in Midtown, come with me now. And I was like, well, I kind of want to change. And he's like, okay, I'll wait here for 15 minutes exactly. And if you're any later than 15 minutes, I'm going to leave. I was like, okay, so I ran home like washed all the important parts of my body in the sink and put on a dress and went back. And we get a cab and he's like, hey, let's have lunch. So we, get, we go to Milos, which is that really expensive Greek fish place 
like business people have lunch and he's ordering a ton of food, I think to sort of like try and like impress me and show me that he has a lot of money, which is fine for me. And I'm eating, like I've never seen food before. Like I'm orphan Annie, like shoving everything into my mouth and he's sending stuff back to the kitchen and I'm like, no. And he's like, no, you have to send stuff back or they don't take you seriously. I was like, never heard that before. Um, and he's being so mean girl with the waiter. Like the waiter comes over, he's like, I love your watch. Like, where did you get that? And he's like, oh, it's like vintage. Like, I got it from my grandfather. And he's like, oh, cool. And then he walks away and he's like, that's the ugliest effing watch I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm like, okay. And he's like, we're celebrating. We have to get drunk. I really want to get drunk. And I was like, like, that's weird. Like, why would he want me to be wasted? But I love drinking. So I was like, I'm just going to completely ignore that huge red flag. So we drink a ton and then we get back to the hotel and I'm really drunk. And uh, we go back to his hotel room, and we're making out. And the only way I can describe it is, like, Tom Hanks in that movie Big, where it's, like, actually a seven-year-old and then the body of, like, a man. <laughs> they don't know what to do. And he was rubbing his head, like, across my boobs, but, like, with my shirt on for just, like, a really long time, and it, like, wasn't progressing. And I was trying to move things forward, but he was, like, getting up and running around the room super ADD. And... Um, and eventually he was like, no, 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 this isn't right. Let's go back downstairs. I want to have another drink. And I was like, oh, okay. So we go back to the, we go down to the bar at St. Regis and it's 3 p.m. It's not a time when you should be blacked out. And, <laughs> and he's like looking at the, the whiskey list and the, the most expensive glass of whiskey on the, the menu is $300. And he's like, do you have anything better? Do you have anything better? And I'm like, okay, I don't know anything about like, I don't know a lot about alcohol because I don't feel like I need to intellectualize my alcoholism, but this guy is bringing out, like, really expensive glasses of whiskey that I don't want, and, um, and he's like, okay, I know what would make this perfect. I know what we need to do. Like, do you have any hot friends that you can invite over? And I was like, ugh, this is so 2015. I just feel like when you date and you're, like, a millennial... It's just okay now for guys to ask you, like, question one, like, where are you from? Question two, what do you do? Question three, like, do you have any friends that m you might want to, like, blow me with? It's like, when did that become okay? So I was like, I don't know. I just, like, don't have any friends that I feel like I can, like, like realistically explain the situation that we're in right now to and have them not think that I'm insane. I was like, no. And then I remembered that I have this fan who's sort of obsessed with me that's been sending me a lot of Facebook messages recently. She was like, I love your writing. I'm here. I'm Dutch. I'm here for the summer like for an internship. Like, we should hang out. She kept sending me messages like, we should hang out. And in my head, I'm like, gross. Absolutely not. Um, but then she just popped into my mind. I was like, oh, well, I do have this one like friend that I've never met who's obsessed with me and desperate. And like, maybe she'll want to come. And he's like, that sounds great. <laughs> so I Facebook messaged her. And within like, I'm like, me and my boyfriend are at the St. Regis having lunch. And yeah, you should totally come meet us. And within 30 seconds, she's messaging me being like, oh my God, I'm going to come. I'll be there in an hour. And I was like, okay. So in my head, I'm like, I just have to last another hour. You know how there's like two tipping points of drunkenness? One is when you're still, you're like, okay, just trying to hold on and act sober. And the other one is when you're like way past that and you're just trying to be conscious. Like that's where I was. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I can do this. But I'm, he's this guy's like insisting that I drink. And then, it all gets really hazy, and then I just don't remember anything. And the next thing I remember, I wake up, and I'm alone in a hotel room, and it's pitch dark. And I'm like, okay, this has happened before. Like, you can do this. <laughs> Slash, like, 
was I just like low-key raped? Like I have no idea. And uh, and it's like dark outside, so, and it's the summer, so I'm like, okay, at least five hours has gone by. Like, you know what's been going on? And also my immediate reaction was anger because I was like, why did they leave me here? Like, where are my friends? You know, um, what's going on? So. Still drunk and also angry, I just immediately storm out of the hotel room and just like walk down the hallway. And then I realized 10 seconds in, I'm like, oh wait, like I'm not wearing any shoes and I don't have my phone or my bag, which I guess I hope are in that room, but I don't have a room key. And like, I don't even remember what the room is now because it's just a hallway full of like 90 rooms. <laughs> so I'm like, fuck, I guess I could go back down to the, to the front desk but they've like, I'm like shoeless and look insane and they've already seen me blacked out at the bar. And also, what are the chances that they're still at the bar? It's been at least five hours. I have no time it is. So like my immediate reaction is just to like bang on the door that's directly in front of me. I'm like, I, th I think I wanted to use their phone, but like I don't even really know. It was like drunk, angry logic. And this guy answers the door and he's like this 35-year-old British man. He's just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> And he's like, I, I don't know, I'm just in my room. And I'm like, well, I'm staying at this hotel and I happen to lock myself out of my room. So can I use your phone? And he was like, okay. And then I realized that like, it would be embarrassing for me to make that phone call in front of him because he was like kind of hot and also just like everything about it is embarrassing. So then I'm like trying to stall and I'm like, so like, what are you doing in town, you know? Like, do you like New York? And we end up having a conversation and having a drink. And then we end up like having sex because like, I'm, I'm a slut and drunk. <laughs> and so I'm hooking up with this guy. And, and then like, at some point I fall asleep again. And I wake up to him like being really gently, just being like, miss, I don't mean to be rude, but I just have a feeling that you won't want to wake up in this room, like in the morning, you know? Like, do you have somewhere to be? And I was like, what time is it? And he was like, 11.30. I was like, okay. And so I call the front desk. I'm like, hey, uh, this is awkward, but like, I'm kind of lost. And like, and the guy <laughs> just interrupts me. He's like, oh my God. Okay, everyone's looking for you, room 531. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So like, by the time I get my clothes on and like walk into the hallway, the guy, like, the guy that I was with before is just like leaning his head out the door and just like, what are you doing in there? I was like, I was taking a nap. And he was like, whatever. And so I walk into the room and my fan is there, like naked, touching herself. I'm like, oh, hey, it's so nice to meet you. And, um, <laughs> and they had been like having sex and she was like, is this okay? Is this okay? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, like, that I'm having sex with like, your boyfriend. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, he told me like you guys have been dating for like two years. And like, I was like, and he just looks at me and he's just like, I'm like, oh no, it's fine. <laughs> And uh, I'm like, here we go again, I guess. Like, now I have to do this. So then we end up having a threesome. And, like, the guy, the whole time, is just, like, obsessively telling this girl, oh, my God, you are so hot. Like, you are so beautiful. You are so hot. I'm like, hi. Like, I'm here, too. Like, arching my back, like, trying to get attention. And he's like... <laughs> and then she, like, goes to the bathroom. And he's like, she's disgusting, honestly. This is so fun. Like, love fucking ugly girls. We should do this all the time. I'm like, noted. You're a sadist. Um, so... We end up having sex or whatever. I'm just like trying to get through it. And at the end, he opens this like giant bag of money. I'm like, where's that from? Which looks impressive at first till you realize that it's like ones and fives that are crumbled up. And I'm like, what? And then he just starts taking handfuls of money and putting it in our bags. And like the end, the, the, the fan or whatever, it's just like wasn't expecting that. And I was like, does she get like half my cut or like what's going on? So 
Um, he doesn't count the money and puts it in our bags. And then we get in a cab and we're like counting. And we each got like 1200 and something dollars in enormous stacks. And then like I had to explain to her, you know, she was like, why did he pay us? And I had to be like, oh, this whole thing was like a giant lie. And like, now you're a prostitute. And... Um, uh, and she didn't seem like that angry about it. And I was sort of angry that I didn't get paid my full rate. But then I was like, well, I guess that I didn't really hold up my end of the bargain. And like, I did leave in the middle of our day to like go fuck someone else for free. So like, and I didn't like have anyone to complain to. So um, that's the story really. And I just felt like before I was 30 that like I got to have sex for money and that was a life goal of mine. So I was really happy. <laughs> I tour a lot with my band, and I, I've been doing this a long time in ways that people wouldn't think were possible or necessarily advisable, which means that we do it in a very indie DIY level especially in the early years. I mean, my first tours were back in 2001, 2002. Nowadays, we're on better financial footing. We can, you know, stay in the occasional hotel. We rent our own vehicles. I own a car, um, things like that. But for many years, especially in the early years, we were constantly staying at people's houses and a lot of times this wouldn't even be planned in advance. You would just ask the audience from the stage, is there anybody that would be willing to house a few of us? And we, this even ex extended to the way that we would travel, which a lot of people find it hard to believe, but it worked wonderfully um, most of the time, um, which is that I would always contact my email list whenever we had a tour coming up, and I would say, is there anybody say, on the West Coast that has a car that would be willing to drive our band around on this tour? Or is there anybody in France that has a vehicle that is available for whatever it is, this two or three weeks? And the way that we would usually do it is we would treat the driver as a fourth member of the band. The band would be myself on guitar. My brother Jack played bass in the band for many years. And we had a few different drummers and um, a few different musicians that have played with me over the years. But it was usually three of us, plus whoever jumped up and volunteered to drive. And this was a great way to save money because we didn't have to rent the car. But I would, of course, I would pay for the gas. And we would treat the driver as a fourth member of the band. We would split the money equally at the end of each night. And whatever was left after paying for gas, myself and bass player and drummer and driver would all get an equal cut. And it was a great way to meet people. Um, it was also a great way to have local guides everywhere we went, people who spoke the local language, who might know people um, everywhere we went. And um, people have asked me over the years, well, didn't you ever 
find, you know, did you ever stay at a house of a real crazy person or did you ever just have a, just a weirdo or a pervert or a psycho end up as your driver or your host? And I will say that at a, a life of, I'm always, you know, willing to take people into my home. I'm always willing to pick up hitchhikers. I've done, a, you know, been on both sides of that equation. And there's really only three people that I can think of who are sort of my, my, my nemesis, who I would be <laughs> frightened to see at a show. Because, of course, we're playing shows where, as you can see, there's no barriers, there's no security, and anybody can leap up from the audience and assault me or anything like that. So it's always good to stay on good terms with everybody, not make any enemies, but over the years, there's three that um, I would be scared to see at a show. And this is a story about one of them. It's 2006, and my band is about to do a tour of Germany, opening up for our friend Adam Green. And Adam's very popular in Germany. These are gonna be some really big shows. And we've sent out word to our email list about whether somebody in Germany might be able to drive us for this tour. And we got a slightly strange email back, which we attributed to the maybe not perfect grasp of English of the person, but it said something about a record label in Berlin called Kitty Yo and a ride that would be waiting for us at the Berlin airport. And it signed off something like, always a friend from Kitty Yo. And that phrase grew to haunt us in the <laughs> weeks to come. It, it actually ended up being sort of an in-joke in my band for years. The ambiguousness, uh, every time there was an ambiguous situation, we would just say, always a friend from Kitty Yo. <laughs> so we, we arrived at the Berlin airport. We flew in from New York and we were already under a little bit of stress because I always plan these things very tightly. The first gig was that same night in Hamburg, which is a few hours drive from Berlin. So we were expecting to get picked up, drive to the Hamburg gig, and there waiting for us was not one person, but two people. There was a woman named Jasmine and a woman named Vera. And we thought, oh, well, this is gonna be a little crowded in the car with five of us and um, our luggage and merchandise and stuff. And, but, you know, what the heck, beggars can't be choosers, and we don't really have time to figure out something else. We gotta get on the road to Hamburg pretty soon to make it to this first gig. So first, so we all got into this car. It was pretty crowded. Jasmine and Vera sat up front, and it seemed that Jasmine was connected or knew people at this label Kitty-O or something, and we figured, oh, I guess they're just friends, and they thought it'd be a cool adventure to come on this tour. Maybe they're fans of ours, or at least they're fans of Adam's, and have the, you know, and um, wanted to just do this thing together, and that, that's cool. So, well, first we have to stop at Jasmine's apartment in Berlin to pick up some stuff, because she wanted to make a documentary of the tour. She was going to get some film stuff, and she was a filmmaker. And we stopped at her place, and some of us stayed with Vera, I guess. Maybe I went into the apartment with Jasmine and somehow in the course of conversation, getting to know each other, Jasmine said something like, something about Vera being our manager. I was like, oh no, we, we, Vera's not our manager. I thought she was your friend. And she said, oh no, I, I've never met her before. She just showed up a minute before you did at the airport. I don't, I don't know her. 
um, she told she told me she was your manager. I was like, oh, that's weird. We we don't have a manager. We I never met her before either. So this sort of so then we all got back into the car for this like five hour drive together, and realizing that there was this stranger in the car with us essentially, and we sort of started to try to figure out who this person was, and she had as we discussed in the car as things sort of started becoming clear she had gotten our email and contacted this label and found somebody at the label who was excited about driving us and told that person that she was our manager and was coming along with us because she was a musician and she wanted to play at these shows also and so we had to explain that that's not really how it works it's not our shows we're lucky to have this chance to have the opening slot and this is and she's kind of getting a little agitated about this because she did hook us up with the ride, which is true. Um, and she plays keyboard. So we were saying, well, maybe you could play keyboard with us on a song or two. That would be, that would be cool. We could work something out. But, um, but it's a little weird that you said that you were our manager. And we thought you were friends with Jasmine. But she, so we, anyway, and this is all getting very dramatic because there's a, some kind of unprecedented hurricane or or tornado hitting Germany and we're just there's driving rain there's pitch black sky there's all kinds of warnings on the radio and we end up getting showing up at the gig very late and stressed out basically miss the set I'm, a, I'm allowed to just jump on stage and play like two songs acoustically um, which is more than generous because we really missed our set time and then of course we you know I got to ask the audience if there's somebody that can house myself and my band and then at the, mer at the merch table afterwards, we do meet this nice couple that say they can put us up. Um, how many of us are there? I say, well, there's, you know, there's my band and our driver. And then there's this sort of like woman that we don't really know. I guess I have to find a place for her to stay also. And um, think, so we, we sort of start talking to this woman. And we try telling her like, well, look, thanks for finding us this ride. But it's really, you know, we got to find housing every night of the tour. I can't have you play a set. It's not our shows. Um, and it's kind of a bit of a burden. It's Jasmine's car. And basically, we're trying to tell her that we can give her train fare to get back to Berlin, but we can't really have her come with us on this tour. It's just too much burden. When none of us know her. And <laughs> she gets very, she's a little off. There's some, you can tell that her reactions and her emotional stability are just, she just seems a little just just weird and sh her sh everything just escalates very quickly into some kind of screaming match and of course the people that are housing us don't want this screaming person back at their house and it just ends it's just a horrible just guilty miserable scene because we end up just ditching her there she's like screaming at the car as we're driving away she and um it just makes us feel horrible so we we do end up telling Jasmine like look like Vera did hook up this ride. You don't have to come with us on this tour. We feel really guilty about all this stuff. But Jasmine's like, no, I want to make this documentary of the tour. So we end up doing the rest of the tour uh, with Jasmine as the driver. And she makes this really cool film of it. And it, it's all cool. But then, um, but we, we still, we just feel really guilty about this poor, this, this weird, crazy woman that we just left like screaming at our, you know, just, just shrieking at us on the street in the middle of the night in Hamburg. Um, so then later on, it's, it's a little while later, um, and we're on tour in, um, in Italy, and we're playing a show with this band, uh, is it Black Dice or Black 
keys or black lips. I, whichever one is the noisier one. I think it's black dice. Um, and I'm in the audience watching them, and I think we're playing our set next, or they're playing it. I don't remember the order. And I feel these arms encircling me. Um, and I turn around, and it's Vera, and she's being, like, really friendly and really, like, lovey. And I'm like, this is really weird. This is so weird. Um, and she's like, oh, I missed you guys. And, and I was like, wow, she really is crazy, or she's on drugs or something. And so we were all scared to be in charge of the merch table that night, because we just did, she's like, she's out there, we don't know. I think she's really crazy. Um, later, we're on tour in England, um, and we're just getting on stage to start the set, and it's a really, for some reason, we've always had more fans in England than anywhere else, so it's a really crowded audience. Everybody's like clustered up at the front of the stage, and there's a keyboard set up here, I've been here with the guitar, my brother's there with the bass, Dave's back there at the drums, and I'm just, I'm like, hello, Manchester, I'm just about to start, and like, somebody jumps up, grabs the keyboard, and like, smashes me over the head with it, but like, right, but not, it doesn't actually smash me, because like, right there, it's like, caught by the fact that it's plugged in, so the cable keeps it from annihilating me, and somebody else in the audience grabs the person who's trying to kill me with the keyboard and, and like hurls them off the stage. And it's just a really confusing, disorienting way for the set to start. And we're like, we don't know what just happened, but we, and, and we were like, was that Vera? We couldn't quite tell. But then after the show, we're, again, we're, you know, the, the night is, is emptying out, we're doing our thing at the merch table, We've, I've got my comic books, I've got my CDs, I'm there, we're selling stuff, we're talking to people, and drummer Dave goes upstairs, it's a downstairs venue, and he goes upstairs to the street to smoke a cigarette, and I'm there selling merch, talking to people, etc., etc. Uh, we have a place to stay figured out, and then Dave comes down at some point, really freaked out, and he's like, Vera's here, she just she threw a bunch of eggs at me. She's across the street. She's throwing eggs at all the people leaving the gig. Uh, and she, she punched me in the face. And she, uh, she's just outside, like, attacking everybody who's coming out of the show. So we were just like, we were like, what? what? How does this... First of all, how does an insane person have the money to get from Hamburg to Italy to England? And what are we going to do? We're trapped in this club... Um, and the security and the security doesn't seem to care at all there's no we're like there's people getting like assaulted in front of the club and um, we we managed to escape and like drive off I guess the uh, oh yeah Dave had some interaction with her where she was like that's my keyboard and we were like no that's our keyboard and um we, uh, and she was like, well, do you want me to go, go get some more eggs? And Dave was like, all right. So she left, and then we like, that, I think that was maybe when we made our escape. But, um, so we basically told all these other promoters, we, we were like, if you see this person uh, trying to come into a gig, but we don't know where she's going to show up next. Um, and basically, well, that's, that's all, I, all I have time for is the tale of one nemesis. But... Um, but uh, basically, it's, it's mo other than that, it's been totally cool getting, you know, finding drivers and places to stay and uh, 
I, I, I would recommend it as a good way to tour if you're starting out. So that's, that's, I guess that's the moral. Always a friend from Kitty-O. Thank you. That was a live musical performance by the great Shilpa Ray, her song, I Is What I Is. Before that, you heard two stories. The first one by Carly Scortino, great writer and character, all-around character. Uh, and then you heard a story from Jeffrey Lewis, one of my favorite musicians, comic book artists, writers, great at everything. Uh, so our next installment of the live series is at the Jane Hotel Ballroom, Sunday, January 29th. To find out more about going to that, uh, go to thetellstories.com or michaellevitin.com. Follow me on Instagram at michaellevitin. We're even on Facebook, facebook.com slash thetellstories. Uh, and I want to, as always, thank Gabriel Galvin for co-producing the podcast and Natalia Schween for co-producing The Tell. Um, this uh, thing I'm speaking over, uh, this is one of our versions of the theme song to The Tell, written by a fool, my song. This one has Chris Egan playing drums, uh, Ian Underwood playing bass, 
I'm playing guitar and I'm going to sing in a minute. Gabriel Galvin is producing all these different versions. We have a new one each episode. Uh, thank you for listening. That was episode five of The Tell. Thank you.